Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Doctors in Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba, and this is our special series, What Plants Crave, where we're talking to indoor and greenhouse growers about the plants they grow and how they got to where they are now. Many of you know my guest today as an award-winning craft cannabis cultivator. You can find him frequently on the speaking circuit, touting the value add of small growers and promoting energy efficient and sustainable growing practices. He's usually easy to spot in his signature baseball cap and is easily recognizable as one of the very few minority African-American growers participating at industry events. Yes, today's guest is none other than Jesse Horton, co-founder and CEO of Loud, a renowned craft cannabis company in Oregon. Jesse co-founded the Minority Cannabis Business Association serves on the board of directors for the Resource Innovation Institute, and has been featured in many publications for the work he does to create a positive future for the cannabis industry and everyone in it. Jesse, welcome to the Doctors in Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on this special series, What Plants Crave. Thank you so much, Nadia. I appreciate the great intro. Uh, We've known each other for Quite a while now, right? Um, yeah, we have. It's really good to connect with you on this forum. Awesome. Yeah, you know, um, I I always appreciated you were one of the first people to attend one of the workshops that we now do on an annual biannual basis. Um, you know, when I first started, cre- when I first created that HVAC workshop, I geared it towards growers. And you were the only grower that showed up to the first one. Everyone else was that was other engineers and manufacturers, people trying to understand the space. And, and so I was so excited to have you there. Since then, we get a lot more growers coming to the workshop, but it just made me realize the hunger in this industry for more information and education about how to get HVAC and climate management and everything else in this space, right? So yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. You know, um, I think most growers, most good growers um, kind of take that similar approach. I don't know who the philosopher was, but um, a wise man knows that he knows nothing at all. Right. Mm. So continuous improvement, you know, never guessing, never leaving, you know, things up to chance if you have any opportunity not to do that. So, you know, that comes with, you know, trying to soak up as much knowledge and and apply it um, and kind of get into the next level. So that was definitely a a good help for me as I kind of move more into the world of not just, you know, building my own facilities, but helping other people to do the same. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I realized when I said you are the only grower there and everyone else seemed to be an engineer is that the funny thing is, is that you are an engineer. So you were also in good company. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind being separated and being known as a grower. Now I don't take that. You know, my background is definitely engineering, but I am a grower. Um, but, you know, it's definitely that engineering mind and the problem solving that, you know, we all gain that um, also really feeds that need to mm. to learn as much as you can from um, from the people who who know what they're talking about. Yeah. Lots of skill sets you can apply to many professions being an engineer, that that curiosity of mind and just that op- the observations and the the analysis. Right. Just like. Yeah, just wanting to evaluate and do better. So, um, you know, let's step back for just a second. And and how did you get into cannabis and becoming a cultivator? 
Wow. It was it was without a doubt the universe. You know, this is mm. where I'm supposed to be. Um, you know, and there's so many things that kind of led me here. I never thought I would be here, but it all started without a doubt as just being, a, you know, having a love for cannabis, you know, uh, since, you know, I was 16 years old, trying my first joint. Cannabis helping me through a lot of things, you know, that people would normally not, um, you know, not, not not believe or not hear and that, you know, I thought maybe I had some form of ADHD when I was younger and I really couldn't sit down and go through a math problem, right? I couldn't sit down and go through the chapter. I was always thinking about 500 different things. But when I started consuming cannabis, I, I turned from, you know, a C, C math student, D math student sometimes to an A math student and kind of that helped really? towards engineering. Yeah, yeah. So that's where that love actually started. Wow. That certainly breaks the stereotype of the lazy, brainless stoner sitting on the couch, not doing anything. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. I'm, you know, most people that, you know, I know are, are very high performing stoners, but mm-hmm. um, you know, it's always good to be able to, you know, fight, uh, fight a negative stereotype. For sure. For sure. So what prompted the founding of Loud? And, and for those of us who don't know, what does Loud stand for? So loud stands for love our weed daily. And, you know, it's really just speaking to connoisseurs like myself, people that are highly discerning, people that, you know, have a nice budget line item for, for cannabis um, in their in, in their monthly budget. Um, so people who really consume on a regular basis. And when I got when I moved to Portland, um, I actually moved from Munich, Germany, where I was there with Siemens for about a year and a half. Mm. And I just got lucky enough to be relocated back to the United States in Portland. And, you know, at that time was when I was, you know, exploring more, you know, the legal side of cannabis, but also learning about the culture that was really developing. Right. And how the things that I was experiencing in the southeast that were kind of more tucked away and you couldn't talk about them. They were more open and, you know, they were kind of a part of everyday life and everyday experiences here in Portland. So. You know, I really wanted to build a brand that first and foremost stood on, you know, really high quality cannabis, nice genetics, things that people want to consume, want to smoke for the smokers, but also a lifestyle brand that, you know, opens up and builds more bridges to this amazing lifestyle that we have in Pacific Northwestern cannabis. So did you move to Oregon on your own or did Siemens place you in Oregon and you stayed in Oregon. Yeah, Siemens relocated me to Oregon. I actually, okay. Yeah, I had an option of going into like heavy consulting um, and that was going to be based in New York, between New York and Atlanta. And that was every day, you know, every week you're traveling, you might, you know, come back on Friday for the weekend and then you're gone again on, you know, Monday morning. So, you know, I, I had that option and I had a really stark difference of sales, you know, and having my own territory in, in Portland. So, you know, I, I decided to go with that and do sales engineering of power generation, automation and uh, controls. And, you know, within a year, I realized how much I hated sales, but how much I love cannabis and, and the cannabis industry. So I decided to put in my, my letter of resignation uh, about a year after getting here. So you just, you discuss, I mean, I think you already love cannabis, but you discovered this passion for cannabis uh, in Oregon. Did you have any clients? Did you have any customers as a salesperson in cannabis? 
You know, I did not. So no, I did not. I was that that life was definitely completely separate, right? No one okay. knew that as much as I knew, other than my buddies that I consumed or that I was even in that world. So you know, that was never that never crossed. But you know, when I did first start growing in Portland, in Oregon, there was still the beginning of the medical cannabis revolution, right? So people were growing in their basements and taking the excess and what the patients didn't use and taking that to the dispensary. So that was where I was getting customers, right? And what I was growing in my basement, I saw that it, it really had a place in the market. Um, and then I started just seeing the opportunity that was available in the market, not just to, to make money myself, to have opportunity for myself, but also to help other people. So had you ever grown cannabis before? Never. Wouldn't no? Even, no, I actually got arrested for a seed when I was in the southeastern U.S. Yeah. So a I, seed? I was, yeah, exactly. One, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was deathly afraid to, to do anything after being arrested. My dad spending time in prison, uh, partly for cannabis. I definitely, you know, outside of having, you know, a dime sack, right? I, I wouldn't think of having anything more than me, uh, more on me. But when I got to Portland, it was it was legal. Right. So I decided to put that clone in the backyard and and I never looked back. How did I mean, talk about that for a second. Like just what what were your own fears and bias? I don't know if bias is the right word, but maybe your own fears and trepidations about getting into cannabis based off of your experiences in the southeast and with your family and yourself. You know, I think first and foremost, it was myself, right? And this idea that I'm this great, you know, corporate guy and engineering and making this much money and, you know, thinking about, you know, um, the way things should be like this ideal picture of, you know, what we're taught should happen right after going to college. You know, I was on that track. So I was like, man, I can't, you know, leave that track and go into selling weed, right? That that would kind of take away from who I am, right? So I think that was first, and I never even considered the industry probably until about, you know, eight months to a year of growing myself, right? I was um, hating my job, but I was thinking about going to Nike or something like that. I was So I was still, you know, trying to stay on that, you know, on that track. And I think second was definitely my family, um, without a doubt. My, my parents, you know, investing so much into me. My dad spending time in prison uh, for cannabis, telling them that I was going to quit my engineering job and and go into, you know, go into selling weed or growing weed was something that, you know, they probably would have, I think, looked down upon at that time, but also were fearful of because of their arrest history and things like that. So I, I think, you know, those things. But then also, you know, third, I would have to say is just the idea of, you know, having a small business, man. You know, it's just really difficult. And, you know, it's just the fear of, of that, just the idea that most businesses fail and you know, whether I was opening up a cannabis business or, you know, a nail shop, whatever it would be that, you know, the likelihood is that it would be a failure. That was definitely probably the, you know, the third thing that really was uh, really was tough to get over. Uh, those are all legitimate. Um, and I know that that leap to start your own business. Um, it's a big leap. Been there myself. Um, and being able to believe in yourself and, and not even that, but just, you know, believe in, in the service or the product or whatever it is that you're providing um, that, you know, for me, that it was going to do good. Um, and, and for me, you know, in that, in that regard, 
just in terms of starting my own business and the fears around that, you know, I had a friend who gave me exactly the piece of advice I needed. And I don't know if you had that too, um, in making this decision, but, uh, she said, you know, will you regret more trying and failing or not trying and not failing? And, and that's all I needed to hear. And that was, that was it. I, I just, I made my decision right then. Yeah, that's deep. That's deep. Yeah. I think I had a couple of those moments. I think the first moment that I had, um, you know, back when I was, I did some business development for Siemens, right? And kind of starting off their energy and efficiency business unit um, back in, you know, the early 2000s. And, you know, the idea of understanding a market and, you know, really seeing opportunity and believing in yourself, you, you said two, you know, really important things in that, you know, it, I never thought about them separately, but it's believing in yourself, but also believing in the product. That's really, you know, that's really what it is, is you believe in the product and then you believe in your your ability to to meet the demand of that. Right. To hit that mark. So it's two separate things, which I think is is interesting. But I and, and you know, I think that's kind of where I was in that I, I was going to get some grow equipment for my basement at the time. They had um, these things called uh, it was Hydro Innovations had these things called Icebox, Icebox heat exchangers. That's what they were. Right. So. Instead of, you know, putting AC in your room, you have these heat exchangers uh, that had chilled water kind of flowing through constantly. And you had them kind of connected to the hoods of the light. Right. Okay. And you had air blowing over, just constantly pulling over that chilled air. And by the end of a row of like three or four lights, three or four hooded lights is what we were using at the time. Right. Especially in the basement, you ended up having AC, like really cold AC pouring out. And then you're also chilling right at the source, right of the light. So that really geeked me out. And I started ordering those things. And I went to order, got, get some from this guy in Vancouver. And uh, he just pulled up in some beat up car and he had about five of them in the back. So I was, you know, buying those from him. And he starts telling me about how he had five different or four different clubs, right? They called them clubs at the time or dispensaries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he said, I got four clubs. And I'm like, yeah, how's that? How is that? I wasn't thinking about the business at all. But he, he's like, man, it's amazing. You know, he's telling me how much money he's making. But then he's like, you know, you only have to compete really against, you know, the mom and pops, right? The, you know, really going into this period of time where there is no Coca-Cola or there is no big guy, right? It's, and you really have the chance to really compete in a market that is wide open, that I believed in the market, right? And I believed in my ability to grow. So it was at that time where I really considered the industry. And then once I talked to my dad about it, he said, you know, you you figured it out, right? The golden handcuffs, right? The and, and he spent his life, right? And I think he could have been a sales. He could have done anything he wanted to, but he spent his life climbing the corporate ladder out of fear, right? Of kind of the same things that I experienced, right? Not, you know, having to get his background check was probably the the main fear that he had because he got oh. on for background checks. So oh, man. he stayed at a company for 35 years. And, um, you know, he said, you figured out the golden handcuffs, just like the idea that companies will pay you a certain amount to forget your dreams, right? Or to not believe or just kind of be comfortable. And if you've got that idea or that feeling to go out, you've got to kind of let go of those golden handcuffs and, you know, get out there and, and, and see what you can do. So I think it was those two moments that really, you know, convinced me to jump all the way in. That's awesome. By the way, um, just speaking of your dad real quickly, has his record been expunged? 
will it be under this new Biden thing? Like, well, yeah, the interesting thing about the Biden thing is that, you know, he he expunged or pardoned simple possession at the federal level, which no one that I know really gets a federal crime for simple possession. If you're a U.S. citizen, you know, the state will give you that charge. Right. Even if you are going across state lines, the state will pick up that charge because the federal government doesn't have any time for it. It, you know, it would seem that those those would be, um, you know, uh, immigrants who are coming across the border, right, and are caught with cannabis and therefore need to get some federal charge um, in order to get, you know, get something on their record, right? So they're either deported. Uh, there was nobody actually in prison for for that. So he did also suggest that other governors, um, you know, do the same. Uh, but it, again, it's only for simple possession and you know, that's still up to the governor. So, you know, most of us, like myself, I have simple possession charges in the state of Florida. You know, no one in the state of Florida is expecting Governor DeSantis to to jump in line with the Biden. <laughs> you know to do I mean? anything that actually yeah. helps the common so, man. That, no, we'll do the opposite. You know, that's, that's pretty much <laughs> right. what we're expecting. So. Okay. Okay. Well, sorry to digress there, but I was, I was so curious. Um, yeah. How, how those laws are maybe affecting you, um, hopefully in a positive way. Um, maybe not yet. So, okay, so you jumped in and you started a cannabis cultivation facility. Um, did you, so, so you were growing in your backyard and then you made the leap to actually like grow like commercially, I guess, or for a retail market. What was that like? Were you still doing it by yourself? Did you bring someone in to help you? Um what were some of those challenges of scaling up even just from your home grow into something a little bit more robust? Yeah, there were a lot. And I'll try to be as succinct as I can because this is over the course of years, many years, right? But, you know, I started backyard, then quickly moved to the basement. The basement became also the garage. My girlfriend left me because she said, I feel like I'm living in a greenhouse. <laughs> What's wrong with that? She was definitely wearing on her nerves. So, you know, I started there and then decided, hey, I'm going to bring my brother and my cousin out. Um, we we opened up a small cultivation facility out in the, you know, the mountains of Oregon, Corbett, only about 30, 40 minutes outside of Portland. And, you know, at that point, I met my partner, my now partner, Dave. If anybody goes to loud.com, then you'll see my partner, Dave, who's absolutely the best grower that I know. You know, and he really taught me a lot about that leap, right, of going from the basement to this more commercial scale and, you know, the the intricacies. And I, so, I, you know, I really think that, you know, the biggest hurdles were first just, you know, being able to handle plants, right, in that space where it can really get hectic, right? And, you know, missing days or missing, skipping steps, um, you know, leaving things to chance, not double, triple, quadruple checking, not having redundancy built into your system, not having a true understanding of the movement of plants and the movement of people. You, you know, understanding that in a cultivation space, I would say without a doubt is what took the longest amount of time for those things to really click in my head and what, really a cultivation space needed to look like in order to be successful, in order to be sustainable, not just from an energy and, and water standpoint, but from a business standpoint over a period of years, right? So you're growing in a space in five years and then you're still going strong versus 
you know, things could be going horrible in one year, right? So what does that really look like? So I think that was the biggest hurdle. And I think also the second hurdle, right, in dealing with the regulatory issues as a new industry starting up, right? You know, being on some of those advisory boards at the city and state level and working as well, you know, in the industry um, and, and trying to go through that process of permitting and, you know, all the calcs that need to happen and, you know, really understanding of how a facility needs to be built so that, you know, it's really, you know, able to pass permitting, right, in a way that is uh, time efficient and in a way that's budget efficient, right? I think the, you know, that's the, you know, also a, ma a massive thing that I, you know, that I've learned. And I think the, the third thing that I probably learned out of there is just, you know, building a team, right? Building SOPs, uh, building a process and training people so that, you know, I can be on a podcast and talk to you and not have to be in the grow room deleafing, you know, and feeling like if I don't do it myself, then it's not going to be done correctly, right? Which is what keeps most tortured souls, us growers, in the grow room is just that idea that, you know, my life is going to be easier if I do it myself, because I know that if I don't, there's a thousand problems that could potentially happen and I'm going to have to ultimately deal with it. So, you know, I had to kind of pull my partner really out of the grow room. He has he's had to pull himself as well after, you know, over 10 years because, you know, it, it really, you know, it really takes that level of faith in people and that level of, of development of your processes to be able to make that a success. Uh, that is a really good point. I love that you broke those down into three points. And I think that idea of building a team and SOPs and that process is so essential to growing any business, right? Is, is, and I think that a lot of, you know, new business owners who want to grow, uh, like we do, um, maybe struggle with delegation and giving things up. <laughs> um, because we know how to do it. And like you said, like, it'll just be faster if I just get it done. And I know how I want it done rather than like taking the time to, to explain it to someone else and then trust that somebody else to do it. But if you can, if we can, right. Then, um, like you said, it opens up our time to do things like this, maybe even go on a vacation because, you know, oh, you know, obviously all equipment always fails on Christmas and 4th of July. Um, so every once in a while, maybe we'd like to go on, you know, a vacation or spend time with our family uninterrupted and knowing that there, maybe there's someone else who can um, fight that fire in our place is nice to have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's big. It takes, <laughs> a while. It takes a while. Was it hard to get a cultivation license in Oregon? Um, you know, you know, without a doubt, yes, it was hard. It was, you know, immensely hard. You know, I think mainly, you know, in fundraising, right, and being able to get the amount of money that you need to really build a business, you know, whether that's a cultivation facility or retail, right, whatever it is, you know, it just takes a lot of money. So I would say that, but you know, on a scale of, you know, what I think is happening across the country, you know, definitely not hard, you know, based on, you know, on, on a scale of one to 10, you know, at the time when we were getting licenses, you know, really a two as it relates to the regulatory hurdles that exist, the red tape that's there, um, the fine print, the need to hire people, you know, I think, 
it, it, it's made to seem like it's difficult, but I think it ultimately was, you know, definitely one of the easier states to uh, to obtain a license at the time. Since then, things have been shut off um, on a moratorium on licensing, um, but still, you know, people are purchasing licenses and things like that. But, you know, back then it was it was possible as long as you had an address, as long as you had real estate. Okay. Okay. How, how big of a facility did you build that first one? The first facility that we had was about 4,000 square feet. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was still fairly small. It was an old uh, horse barn, 4,000 indoor square feet. And then we had about 12,000 square feet of greenhouse space where we uh, grew organically. And we you know, did that for a couple of years. Cool. Cool. Did you feel like you faced any hurdles being a minority, being an African-American male? Was that harder to get a license, do you think, or to break into the industry? Um, or maybe did it give you any sort of advantage? And also, I feel like you're in Oregon. If you were maybe in other states, maybe it would be different. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, in Oregon, there is no state equity um, law. Um, so, you know, at that time, you know, we were really fighting for that idea of equity being talked about at the table. And now, you know, it's at every table. So, the industry as a whole has come a long way since then. But, you know, in those first few states, um, Oregon, Washington, uh, California, you know, and uh, I think Oregon, Washington, and Colorado, of course, um, or Oregon, Washington, Colorado, there was not much mention of that at the state level. So we still have not been able to break break that glass ceiling uh, from an equity standpoint. So there, there aren't really any true advantages to being an African-American uh, seeking a license in the state of Oregon. Um, you know, I would say that there there have been disadvantages as it relates to, you know, of course, getting people to believe in me to raise money. There was many years, right, where, you know, I really had to just scratch tooth and nail to be able to get to that next rent payment um, because I wasn't able to raise money like some of my peers. And I think that had something to do with it. Um, but, you know, I, I think without a doubt, now that, I found a place for myself in the industry. I think that I, you know, I, I represent an important voice in the industry as an African-American male who's dealt with some of those traditional issues and has really applied what I know to help elevate my stature and elevate what we're doing in the industry. I think that that, you know, that adds something to my story. I think it adds something to my perspective and my understanding of the market, my understanding of these different cultures um, you know, I think I can speak to people in a different way, you know, through our branding. And so I think without a doubt, there's many advantages to to me being an African-American male, not really as it relates to the getting the licenses, getting the funding, you know, and things of that nature. I think, you know, also without a doubt, there is an automatic um, reaction to put, you know, pigeonhole me into this equity position. Right. I think a lot of people. I was wondering about that. Yeah. yeah right, that I'm an equity grower, that, you know, I'm an, I'm an equity brand on the shelf. And, you know, there's been a, a lot, you know, a lot of fighting to push through that stereotype to help people understand that, you know, as from a loud perspective, my company is is aimed at being the absolute best in everything we do. You know, it's, it's branding, it's customer service, it's connection to the community, it's, of course, quality, it's strain selection, um, it's presentation. Right. All of these things, um, you know, we think about very closely and I aim to be the absolute best out of any company that there is. So, you know, that's something you know, that that 
that that fuels me to be better. I, I think in all these areas is to prove to people that you know I'm I'm here for a reason. You know that I add a you know a real value to the industry to the market from a number of perspectives. And I think you know once people uh, understand that, it opens up a lot more doors for myself and for my company. Yeah. Well, you've been a great role model um, for. I would say all of us, and I'm just going to sort of include myself in the minority um, category, just being um, a woman engineer in general. Um, you also don't see a lot of women growers on the circuit. I feel like we're starting to see more. Um, and, uh, you know, I appreciate all the work you're doing. And I appreciate, like you were saying, your focus on, you know, the plant on, on cannabis, on the product, on the people that you're serving. Um, and it's not just, you know, beating one drum. I mean, you're beating a lot of drums, um, and helping elevate the industry overall. So thank you for that. And, and on a personal level, I mean, you are an engineer, um, and there's not a lot of grower engineer, engineer growers out there. Um, so I love being able to connect with you on that front and, and on that front, I want to ask you some engineering questions, if I can. Um, <laughs> Do you need to put on a different hat? <laughs> I mean, you come from such a unique place. I mean, the fact that you come from that your experience with semen and automation and controls, to me, that is one of the biggest weakest links in our industry right now. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Like, what is your level of, I don't know, can I just say disappointment? <laughs> but I mean, how can it be better? Why, why haven't we figured out automation and controls yet for this plant, for these, for this, for these facilities? You know what? Um, I think more than anything, Nadia, and I, you know, I struggle with it, you know, myself and being a small grower who's really trying to compete in this market and trying to think about, you know, the next level. And every night that I go to bed, there's 10 things that I could have done or that I should have done that I didn't get a chance to get to. Right. And that kind of leads to that tortured soul of a grower in that. You know, we're really, you know, really trying to survive and trying to build a, a place that, you know, is, I say it's used sustainable. And I, I mean, that's a place that we can really say um, that we've actually built a business, right? And that we can get to the next level. I think there's so many growers, cultivators, business owners out there who are thinking like that. I always, I compare it to this. I, I remember how, uh, I think there was this show, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or something like that, where you know, you would do all this lead up, right? People would take surveys and they would, you know, have phone interviews and they would do all these things to get on the show, right? And you finally get on the show and you can be there with all the lights on you and the cameras and everything. And you still got to answer what, three questions, right? Before you can get to that actual, that, that level where you can mm. walk away with something, right? And I think for many years and still, right, we're kind of trying to answer that first second. We're doing our phone a friend. We're doing all these things, right, to try to get to that level where we actually can say that we can walk away with something. And I think many of us have been trying to get to that level for so long that it's been hard to really take advantage of the things that are out there. You know, I think that there are a lot of solutions out there that growers could absolutely benefit from that we can't or many of us can't really invest in or can't 
invest the money to implement those systems or can't invest the time to really dig in or the you know the the resources to dig in and make the real the right decisions with that information to work with organizations like Resource Innovation Institute to benchmark their companies to then figure out what do they need to do to get to the next level. Um, there is a lot of things that I think we can do that we just have to continue to help growers understand the benefit, how it's going to benefit their real, um, you know, top and bottom line, convince growers to really understand, you know, how these payback periods make sense. Um, all these things, I think we just have to kind of connect the dots on uh, to take advantage of the systems that are out there. I'm, I've been pretty happy with some of the things that I've seen out there, mainly not so because they they solve every problem, but because they give me enough information and enough control to be a little bit better than I am right now. And I'm just I'm more so disappointed in myself that I haven't really been able to invest and take advantage um, of, of some of the things that are out there. Interesting. Interesting. I have found it kind of interesting right now where we are in the market, at least here in California, we have such a glut of supply, right? And not enough retail stores or demand um, to feed the legal market um, or to support it. And what I want to say is interesting. You you brought up, you know, the bottom line and investing the money and time into solutions that could make your life easier or you're growing better or, you know, have a, have good payback in however many years, whatever, however many months or years you're looking at. And, and what I have found right now is, you know, when I first got into consulting for this industry, I don't know, like seven, six or seven years ago, um, a lot of people weren't willing to look even at paybacks of a couple, three years because they were concerned, you know, like, is this really going to stay legal? Is the Fed going to raid me? You know, like what's going to happen? It was so uncertain with the laws, what was going to happen. And then, you know, we kind of hit the sweet spot. People started investing in money. There weren't raids happening. You know, the Fed said, we're not, the coal memo came out. We're not going to come after you, right? And everyone kind of breathed a sigh of relief. Okay, we can invest in stuff, right? And make, and do better. Now what I'm seeing, at least here in California, and I'm curious if you know this for other markets, including Oregon, is that because of this oversupply, people aren't able to make the revenue that they set all these goals and expectations, right? Um, these pro formas on it with their investors. And so now they're like, well, we would love to invest in, you know, a better boiler, more efficient equipment or automation or whatever. But we don't know if we're going to be in business in six months because we don't have the sales. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's like we've gone back to where we started, but in a completely different, you know, different light. Uh, for a completely different reason. Are you, are you seeing that in other markets too? Is that trend happening everywhere? Yeah, you know, I think without a doubt, you know, in some places it's drastically uh, worse than others. In a place like Oregon, California, Colorado, Oklahoma, they're definitely, you know, feeling that, that squeeze again. There was a very short window of, you know, everybody is looking really good and we want to mm -hmm. invest and grow. And then that window closed uh, pretty quickly as more people started to, you know, add licenses to those markets because they were getting so excited, right? And it really just caused a glut 
I think in a lot of ways. So I, I definitely see it, but I, you know, there's other markets where I'm, I'm not seeing that nearly, you know, as much, right. I think markets like, you know, Massachusetts, I think are doing a lot better. Illinois, you know, now they're just getting started, right. Um, New Jersey, um, you know, these markets are just getting started and they're kind of, I guess, going through that short period where everyone's feeling good until they add more. And I, but I think that it's kind of similar to marketing. I think there, there's so many things that can be done better. When I look at marketing, right, there's so much customer loyalty that's needed out there. There's so much need for good brands. There's so much need for people to connect with those brands and, and really find those right products that in these downturns, if you're not investing in those types of things, then you know, you'll know you quickly see yourself continue to stay in a downturn, right? Even when the market picks up, you'll find yourself kind of lagging behind. And I think that's very similar to finding efficiencies, finding opportunities to improve your facility, improve your process, um, improve your team. I think, you know, it's very similar in those areas because, um, you know, when things turn on, things look fantastic. And if you're not able to really take advantage of that, then, you know, it, you know, too bad because the market is shifting in all kinds of ways. So you better take advantage of those good periods as they come. And I think there will be more good periods to come as we look towards the opportunity for uh, interstate commerce, you know, for us to really have a real business and open up banking, um, you know, for us to have a real, you know, national industry and start to take take advantage of globalization uh, within the cannabis market. I think there's many, many good days to come. So, you know, I think it's short-sighted for, for companies uh, to to not invest in those things, even though I completely understand. And, you know, it's, it's tough out here. I mean, for, for those newer markets, it sounds like they have the opportunity and maybe some advantage of, of hindsight to invest now uh, if they can in those better and now more tried and true technologies. You know, I mean, that was the other thing, right? Five or six years ago, all of you were really, you know, taking a chance on equipment and technologies that were new to the market, new to how you were growing. Um, I mean, how how have you navigated even that? Like, Oh, that's a good one. No, I mean, it's, I fall in the same boat. I mean, so you're talking about back then, these technologies, not only were, you know, we implemented those technologies and they're here and we would have to then retrofit or find different ways for things to work together and talk together. That's one piece of like the technological aspect of implementing some of these things. But then there's like, you know, the the mental aspect of being a grower, right? And being a true grower who is used to seeing that piece of equipment or knows how to you know, utilize that piece of equipment or understand these lights or understands all these things that happen. And we just don't want to change the variables because it's taken us years and years to truly understand, you know, how to even semi control them or make ourselves feel like we can control them. Right. So um, I think there's two aspects that make that difficult to really, you know, um, change and utilize some of these new things so it has been difficult um even myself being a being an engineer and understanding these technologies you know we're just now implementing led lights in our facility um you know we just you know we it took a lot of funding right to make that happen and working with the oregon energy trust to to find those incentives but you know definitely there was a mental block there and you know we're trying to figure out 
you know, a thousand different problems right now. It's throwing in the difference of lights is definitely not one that we're excited about figuring out as well as we're trying to, you know, understand these paybacks and things like that. What what is what are some of those thousand changes that you anticipate having to make switching to LED lights? So yeah, you know, so without a doubt, um, one of the biggest is going to be, and this is this is probably if you think of a, a pie graph, this is like eighty percent in my mind, um, and where we're trying to hit and growing is the genetics, you know, and making sure that we have the right genetics that really work well under those LEDs. From my experience, it does, it comes down to that in general, when you put genetics out in the market, you can put something out that looks pretty. Um, but if people don't come back because they really enjoyed that experience, then, you know, it's going to sit on the shelf the next time or somebody's not going to order it, no matter how good it is the next time it comes around. So, you know, what I understand, what I know is that the genetic selection under these LED lights differs. And not only that, we've spent so much time selecting genetics and doing genotype hunts over years, you know, over a decade under HID lights, that the idea that we can then go put those same genetics under LEDs is, you know, kind of, you know, not realistic, right? And still get exactly what we want. So, you know, we've been doing a lot of testing right now under different genetics, selecting under LEDs as opposed to selecting under HIDs and trying to make them fit in the LED landscape, the ones that really fit the, the, the height profile that we want, the flavor profile, the look, the smell. I think that's been the biggest piece. And then, you know, of course, the different changes that happen in the room, uh, the feeding protocols, um, the leafy structures, right? The, the, the difference in, in how the, the, the plants grow um, and how they hit the marks that we want them to hit. The, the heat profile in the room, right? And the need to really get that up uh, up to where it needs to be for the plant to really uh, photosynthesize as, at, at the rate that it wants. So there's definitely a lot of a lot of those areas that are still a lot of things that that take up the rest of that 20%. But, you know, I would say maybe 75% is genetics and the other 25% is really what's happening in that room. I love that you start with genetics. Whenever I talk to cannabis growers um, in in various climates under various lighting. You know, if I talk to a grower who's growing in, you know, the the South somewhere, Texas or Florida or Mississippi or Arkansas or whatever, um, and if they're going to grow in a greenhouse, it's like, oh, right? Like you just kind of shudder at the challenge that they're going to have with humidity. But when they start with we are looking for the genetics, right? We are pheno hunting, breeding to fit, you know, to find the genetics that we can grow in this climate under these high intensity light, right? In, in the sun belt. I just, I breathe a sigh of relief because they're not going to be trying to grow a really cool climate strain coming from Humboldt, right? Or, or a big, you know, a, an LED bread strain, maybe even now at this point, they're really thinking about the growing conditions that they are going to have. And rather than trying to shoehorn, uh, you know, uh, a cultivar strain into the climate that they have and make the climate work for it, they say, no, we're going to work with the climate, with the environment that we have. I just, I respect that so much. Yeah, I have, um, you know, two facilities here in, in Oregon. 
And, um, you know, I have trouble growing one strain the exact same at two different facilities, right, that have the, you know, they've been set up. The system has been set up by one person, two people. So, you know, you would think that they would really be closer to a mirror image, right, when you have the same strains. But, you know, there's definitely differences, even, you know, three, four miles away, two miles away. Um, and I can't necessarily pinpoint all of those different um, all those different variables, but I definitely know that, you know, even in the exact same conditions, seemingly uh, you get you get, you know, minor minor variations. So um, definitely, you know, there's so many things happening in the environment, the, the air quality, the water quality, this, this and the third, some things we can track, some things we can't that um, you've got to have the right genetics that fit well within your facility, within your system, within your market. And there's a lot to that, right? To checking off the boxes that that do all those things. So yeah, we spend a lot of time, um, you know, working with genetics, you know, and understanding that that's kind of, you know, really the, the, the puzzle piece that makes, you know, all these other, you know, engineering systems and, you know, advanced, you know, data collection, you know, methods and, you know, advanced markets and all these changes and fluctuations in the market, the genetics, right? And understanding that puzzle piece is definitely one that that helps to put everything together. What do you say to the growers who are like, oh, but the consumer wants this, right? The market wants that. They they need a, this purple strain or they need this orange thing or they need this thing with this, you know, strain name on it i i mean it's i i think about you you know you you talked about about having a good brand craft cannabis you know and then finding genetics that that meet your market meet your climate i mean is that all kind of rolled in together so yeah I, I think it is i think it is yeah it is all rolled in together i think you know without it you know I, there, there, there's a lot to that you know there's as far as what the market wants, you know, I only listen so much. I listen with one ear, you know, and I don't let it go out the other ear, but I definitely, some of it goes out of the other ear because, you know, a lot of times people want to do what's easier for them, you know, and maybe it is easier to sell a strain that, you know, has a name or has a hype, I think in a lot of ways, but I think you know, the best companies to me are the ones that are creating waves in this market and not necessarily riding other waves. And there's a lot of there's a lot of angles to be had. There's a lot of value to be given to customers, to other retailers, to businesses. So, you know, I, I understand that, you know, and we certainly select our genetics with a strong understanding of what will do better easy easier in the market but there is also a, a really strong um other hand as we're selecting that you know how is this different you know does this add anything to the market does this add a new flavor profile does it add something that people need that they don't necessarily know that they need that they haven't seen so we're you know we have to constantly look at that and i think that you know everybody has to you know because We've seen that, you know, with a lot of memes and things that go around in California of everybody growing ice cream cake, right? Or, you know, we've seen that in the past. Maybe memes weren't as possible, you know, weren't as popular, but we saw that with Blue Dream and, you know, Jack Herrera before that. And so there was a lot of, you know, people really getting tired of certain strains. 
And um, if you don't have that new, right, and you find yourself with, you know, a stable of five or six strains that, you know, just don't really move the market or that a bunch of other people have, then, um, you know, it's going to take you a long time to get a new five or six that are going to do well, right? It takes us, you know, we might pop a thousand seeds and find one or two strains that ultimately might work. So, you know, it's, it's a long, long process and you have to invest in finding new strains and having different strains um, to help to create those waves in the market. I love that. Creating waves versus riding the waves that are already, already there. And I, I also like your perspective of, sort of creating a market that wasn't necessarily there. And by that, you know, like, okay, you have these strain names that, you know, there's probably 10 that everybody would recognize or most people would recognize, but to stay ahead of the curve, to stay competitive, have that competitive edge to create a market for a new something, right? Something that's, that's unique and different and special maybe to your brand or just to your market in general. I think that's a really important take from from a, a small business owner for sure yeah i mean it's so I mean, it's, that's the i think the only way that small businesses can survive in this market right you know you can't you can't be riding other ways you'll get washed out really quickly and you see it happening in oregon right uh, so you know you have to give the market something different that can't necessarily be replicated um, a brand a strain a perspective lifestyle, service, whatever it may be, you know, you got to create something that can't easily be replicated. Mm. And that creates an authenticity that just, you know, can't be, it doesn't matter how much money the company has, you know, that they can't, you know, they can't beat that or they can't beat you in that lane. And I mean, there's a lot of small businesses and companies that I really respect that have done just that, that I've kind of taken my model from, you know? Nice. Earlier, you were talking about the the opportunities coming with, you know, if we deschedule or reschedule cannabis, opening up interstate commerce, sort of the the global uh, market that you know is is out there, ready to go in in some places. Um, you don't seem afraid of that, uh, and I feel like a lot of people are the opposite. Why aren't you? You're smiling right now. People can't see that, but like. Yeah, why why aren't you afraid of interstate commerce? I mean, like like we said, I believe in the product. I believe that amazing weed cannot easily be cannot easily be created, right? That it takes a lot of work, it takes an understanding of the market, it takes a lot of luck. Um it takes a lot of things happening to create that. So I, I don't think a lot of people can do it. I don't care how much money they have. Um and I believe in my ability, like we said, myself, my ability to hit that mark because of my background, because of my team, because of my purpose in this market. I believe I provide something that, you know, very few have. So I, you know, I, I certainly welcome any challenge that the cannabis market has because I love this shit. I love cannabis. I love uh, the, the culture. And I think that, you know, we, we have the ability to compete with absolutely anyone. So I, you know, man, I know there's enough out there. You know, they say a rising tide what lifts all boats, whether those that don't have holes in them. Um, and you know, I know we don't have any holes, so we're 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 good. That's awesome. Do do you see 
the future being having sort of the the large scale producers, the quote unquote Anheuser Busch model versus sort of the microbrew model? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's where everything is going, you know, liquor market, wine market. You know, every I, I think, you know, um, you know, when you look at the luxury market in general, you know, unfortunately, I, I think I don't even want to go into all the different dynamics that are making this happen. But, you know, the luxury market, people who really appreciate something that's a little bit turned up, they appreciate something that becomes a lifestyle. Right. It's not just about wanting to smoke the best, but you're around a bunch of smokers. You want you know, you want to be able to show off your weed and, and then say, oh. I want that, right? You want them to hit your weed and say, oh, man, what the hell is this? Where'd you get this? Like, that gives you a little, you know, extra little heart flutter, right, to us real smokers. So, you know, I, I completely understand, um, you know, what that means and the value that people place upon that, the value that I place upon it. So I know that there's a lot to being able to hit those marks. But I also know that, you know, some people don't give a damn, right? They just, you know, they, they couldn't, they smoke a vape and they don't care what's in it. And that's great. And I know that those, you know, the larger companies will be able to hit that mark much easier than I can, right? At a scale, at a price mark, all these things come into play when it comes to hitting that dollar mark, right? That, that, that the masses want. So I don't, I don't think that that's where I really add the biggest value. I don't think that's where I really understand the market the way that I understand my market. So I know that, you know, this is where I need to be. That's awesome. How, how important is efficiency in this industry? And how do, how do you think of, of efficiency? You know, do you think of it, you probably think of it in many ways as a grower with, with labor, as an engineer with energy, but what what are maybe even some of the, the the best tips you can give to other growers to improve the efficiency of their facility? Absolutely. Some of the things that we've done here at Loud that I think are industry leading um, that I haven't seen anywhere else are really focusing very heavily on ergonomics um, as it relates to the movement of people. Right? I took that class when I was in in school and I thought it was, you know, I'm doing these time studies and I'm like, what does it matter if they move three times, they move their hands three times versus two times, right? Who cares? It doesn't matter, right? But as you start, you know, you learn that and you learn those efficiencies in the movement of people and the work that they're doing, you know, you find a lot of benefits, not just in the amount of time it takes, not just in the amount of resources that you need, um, but also in the, in the happiness of your workers, right? And people feel more comfortable and like all these things come into play when you think about ergonomics and the movement of people within the facility. I think, you know, also on top of that is the movement of plants and how plants, you know, are really taking advantage of the efficiency in a space. And you think about that when you think of canopy uh, development, right? And having an even canopy uh, within your your plants, especially at that flower level, but you can't get it right unless you're all the way throughout because there's a certain efficiency zone that, you know, your lights are hitting, right? And if you want to be within this efficiency zone with the maximum amount of plants and the maximum amount of nodes, then you've got to really have this even canopy, which means that you've got to, you know, do a lot of training, you know, you've got to do a lot of these small things as it relates to plant maintenance so that by the time the you know showtime and they're in that flowering space or 
you know, the lights have turned, you know, the lights started to, you know, reduce in hours in the day that you really have an even canopy that's taking advantage of the efficiency of that plant and that space. And, um, you know, without a doubt, you know, the efficiency of the energy and the water, you know, I think is something, right? We, we recycle our dehumidified and our condensate water. Um, we, you know, really, you know, we're moving towards recycling all of our water when we build our new facility. Um, we utilize a lot of energy saving uh, techniques in addition to bringing in LEDs. We, you know, did a lot of energy saving things um, before then. So I think in those three areas, right, a lot of times we think of efficiency as, you know, one of the three, but I think, you know, anybody that's in a facility has got to think of these as three separate things and then how do they work together, right? How, do one, how does one play into each other? I think is a really great way to, um, to just maximize, you know, everything in a, in a facility. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that you're recycling your condensate. I feel like that's something that people talk about doing. People aspire maybe to do to demonstrate the water saving capabilities of growing indoors compared to field, you know, because we always get in indoors always gets beat up for how much energy it uses. But let's talk about water and how much we can save. Have you have you measured the water quality coming back from that condensate? Do you have any concerns about that? So we filter it. We bring it through a number of filters. There's a couple of uh, companies out there that, you know, do better than others on filtering that condensate. So we actually had to increase the size of our condensate filter because we were getting so much water coming back from from our ACs. And wow. Our so we definitely have to take it through a, you know, pretty detailed filtering process, but haven't had any problems once it gets back and circulated into the system. That's awesome. That's awesome. I feel like growers are concerned about microbial contamination, maybe toxic metals leaching off the coils. Um, but so far, you know, yeah, microbial contamination. I know, you know, I mean, you can carry a lot of bad bacteria and molds in, in water. But, you know, the toxic metal thing, I haven't seen any actual studies or reports saying that that's really true. So, yeah, I was just kind of curious, being someone who's actually doing this, if you've seen any negative, anything negative about using it. We haven't. Not yet. You know, and, um, you know, I would definitely look to do some more tests on the water we're pulling back, but we hadn't seen any negative issues in our in our process um, and our water quality um, coming back. But, you know, I definitely think there's there's more to be said. Yeah. I mean, it's basically distilled water. Right. I mean, it, it should be about as pure as it could be, at least, you know, when it first leaves that coil. Of course, it has to find its way back through the facility. But um, yeah, that's so awesome that you're doing it. Do you have an idea how much water you're saving? We were probably between between um, depending on which day. Right. Of course, heavily water, you know, heavy water days and, you know, plants at different sizes, but usually somewhere between. 28, 40, 40% of the water use at our facility we were getting from our, from our, our ACs. and DNA. That's so cool. Yeah, it really was. It was very surprising. Very surprising. Nice. Nice. What metric do you use, Jesse, to, mm, to evaluate your own energy or water use? Do you use like a kilowatt hours per pound or per square foot? Like how do you compare against yourself? Yeah, you know, I, I look at two different metrics, right? I think without a doubt, 
pound or you know kilowatt hours per pound as I'm looking at you know the efficiency of my flower space. Um, and you know, am I really getting what I need to get out of there? Um, you know, and really maximizing what I can do. You know, I certainly look at a second one of overall kilowatt per square foot of the entire facility, just to get an understanding of you know everything that's happening. You know, there's there's probably more to be had and more efficiency to be had in that growing process, but um, we kind of kind of like to look at it as a whole to understand how a facility per facility is doing, just utilizing the space as a whole, not just, you know, just the, the flowering space. Yeah. Nice. Nice. We, um, we hear a lot of different metrics used for, for energy, especially some people use, uh, you know, I think it's, it's kind of a playoff of pounds per light that now we see things like kilowatts per pound or pound per kilowatt. And I think it's just kind of the same ideas, but instead of a light fixture, it's the light power. That's one of them that we see for sure, too. Pretty much saying the same thing. But. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, why did you uh, why did you choose to grow indoors rather than in a greenhouse or out in the field? Yeah. So, um, you know, I I have done all. I think without a doubt, when we look at commercial cannabis cultivation, it's very difficult if you want. I mean, I think what it comes down to is I wanted to grow what I wanted to smoke and it's very difficult outdoors for me to meet the demands of the market and focus on what I want, right? So, I mean, I say that you can certainly grow amazing bud outdoors, and I, I do, and I, you know, I love that. But if you're only harvesting once a year, right, then you're really not so much playing. I mean, you're harvesting it around the same time every harvest, you know, everyone else harvests Croptober. And you're pretty much trying to get stuff. It's a whole different market than than the smokers connoisseur market, or you're processing a lot of that, right? And you're taking advantage of a lot of that, which is great business, but it's not where I really add my most value, right? So I think when it comes to outdoors, you know, I I don't add a lot of value there and hitting what I want as well as hitting what the market wants. As it relates to greenhouse, I think. I think it's more so a, a factor of a factor of space and control that you know is not has been what I focused on. I in my new facility we're building some greenhouse space, so without a doubt, it's I think it's an important part of the market and has the ability to do both of those: hit what I want, hit the quality level, and also harvest more often, right, and still kind of hit within the regular flow of the market. So, you know, I think greenhouse is extremely important. However, I certainly believe in indoor cannabis. I think for many years, people have said that greenhouse was going to, you know, take over completely the indoor cannabis market. And though I think that greenhouse has an extremely important place to play in all of these markets, in the smokers market, as well as the process market, I think that it's difficult to harvest as often five, six times and completely or as much as you can possibly control an environment and a space to really concentrate on maximizing multiple cultivars in one space. You know, so I, I think that it has something to do with that, even though I know you can do it in the greenhouse. Don't get me wrong. I love greenhouse as well. But the third thing is that I'm, I'm a city. I'm a city boy. You know, I, I got to be in the city. Like I, 
you know, that's part of loud, right? It's like, you know, I love the out, I love outdoors. I love to go to nature. I love the camp, but I love being in the city as well. Like I want to live in the city. I want to, you know, be part of that vibrant movement. I want to, you know, understand all those things. So that is part of who I am. And when you add all those things together, then you can see why, you know, I found my, my main home in the indoor market. Um, you know, when you look at my preferences and, you know, how I can hit what the market needs, but, you know, I think all of them are extremely viable and I can't wait to start growing under the sun again. There's absolutely no, as much as I love indoor, there's no argument that the sun produces a terpene profile, produces a taste, you know, that you just can't get from the same cultivar in, um, you know, indoor. So I absolutely know that. And I, you know, I look forward to having that as a part of the, as a part of the, uh, the profile of what Lau brings to the market. You're an urban farmer. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> All summed up in two words. <laughs> Serving your, your local market, um, growing right there, using the resources and the people that you have right there. I, I love it. Are there special considerations? I mean, because you're in an urban location, I know just for any farming operation, there are, can be some serious challenges, especially with shipping you know, product moving in and out of, of an urban location and navigating the streets as opposed to being out in the middle of nowhere, right? And it's kind of, it's harder to get to, but it's also easier to access, if, if that kind of makes sense. As an urban farmer, as an urban cannabis grower, what are some of the special conditions you have to deal with or challenges you have to deal with being in a city? Yeah, you know what? I I'm kind of in that nice sweet spot and being in more of an industrial area of a city right okay. where you don't have to worry so much about neighbors and i've definitely dealt with that and growing in warehouses a little bit more tucked away in neighborhoods and closer to neighborhoods you don't have to worry about power outages quite as much right because the industrial areas the city is much more likely right to focus on getting that up and running even, you know, and sometimes than they are the residential areas and definitely mm. they are, you know, outside and, you know, more um, rural areas. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think, you know, that that's a good thing about where I am. So we don't have a lot of those, a lot of the main issues that you would have to deal with with being truly in the city city, right? We're kind of on the outskirts where we kind of can benefit from having the workforce, that wants to right work at your facility, right? The fact that we're not 40 minutes outside of the city and that we're 15, 10 minutes from, you know, from downtown means that we have access to a way wider work pool than the majority of cultivation facilities would normally have. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of benefits to more of an industrial area if you're indoors and not, you know, as many drawbacks as, you know, as as many might think. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective on the labor force, even because I know um, some of the growers we work with or that I've talked to even on this podcast who are in, you know, more traditional agricultural regions sometimes have to compete with seasonal uh, workforces and labor. Um, and so, you know, here in California, it's like all of a sudden everyone goes out and is picking tomatoes and lettuce. Uh, and it's like, you know, these cannabis growers are like, hey, wait, come back. <laughs> but then at the same time, they also may have an advantage because they have year round production and it's not seasonal. Right. 
Yeah, I, I think the labor workforce is really um, interesting when we talk about cannabis and, and agriculture in general. Do you find a lot of people in the city who are excited to be working with plants? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're, uh, you know, Portland and, and Pacific Northwest is a cannabis yeah. for, for decades. So, you know, not only are people still, you know, excited, you know, it's a way of life for many. They've been doing it for many years. There's a lot more skilled labor. Um, and I think you will find in a lot of places, which sometimes can be bad, right? People have their own way of doing things. So, you know, it's difficult to kind of get them to do it a different way. But I think in a lot mm. of ways, yeah, I think without a doubt, we've uh, we've had a lot easier time finding, you know, the right the right level of people. And you, you need people. You know, you really do. It is agriculture. Plants can really get out of hand if you miss certain days or you skip any steps. Or, I mean, it really can, you know, growing can be, I tell people that I teach and people that come up under me, growing, it can be amazing and easy or it can be horrible. It can be the worst thing and you can hate it, right? And it really comes down to the discipline, the processes, and, you know, having the right people there, the right amount of people and utilizing them as well as you can to to make it a completely different uh, picture than it would be otherwise. What do you tell people who want to get into this industry Maybe just an anybody who wants to get into this industry, or even you know minorities, minority folks who want to get into the industry. Uh, what's your advice to them? Uh, first, I say do it. You know, do it fast, right? Don't don't talk about it. Start going to meetings. Start getting involved. Start working. Just dive. You know, dive head first in. I think you know it's important because you know opportunities are leaving all the time. But I think. The second thing, the most important thing that I tell them is um, you've got to go deep. You know, uh, don't be an inch an inch deep and a mile wide, right? Don't be someone who thinks they know about a bunch of things but don't really know uh, more than the average people who, who do that, right? That doesn't add any value to anyone in the market. We don't need someone just because you were good in corporate America or you know how to write an email that, you know, you're going to teach the cannabis industry how to be more professional, right? We don't need people who, you know, think that they're going to teach the industry. I think we need people who, you know, really want to come in and add value to the industry, right? And find something where they really add value, where they can go deep and then provide value to consumers, to businesses, to business owners, whatever it may be. Um, if you can do that, then I, you know, I think you definitely need to need to jump in. Don't teach add value. Yeah. You're just all full of great mottos today. <laughs> You're definitely going deep. Um, all right. La last couple of questions here. Just the industry in general. How has the industry evolved since you first got into it? Is it going in the right direction? Wow. You know, I've had my head, like most people, I've had my head down absolutely probably the past eight years. I probably just pulled my head up last year, maybe a year after we found it loud, where I actually just looked up and said, okay, what's really happening? Because, mm. you know, the only thing I could think about was hitting that next toll gate or my business wasn't going to be there, right? Like the how to be a millionaire, I had to get to the second and third question or none of this mattered anyway. That's kind of yeah. how people was like, 
You know, we're either going to be 10 years from now sitting back talking about, hey, wasn't it cool that we had that cannabis business back then? Yeah. Look at yeah. Happening. And then we're going to wake up and go to work at some job we hate or we're going to be still in the industry and, you know, and making moves. And I think that only comes by, you know, us kind of focusing on what we're doing and trying to be the best. So that's that's mainly what I've been doing. But, you know, if I since the last year that I've looked up, I just look at, you know, mainly the, the globalization of the industry. You know, I spent a lot of time in Amsterdam when I was in Munich and um, even before then when I was in college. And, you know, we would go to the greenhouse, see, you know, greenhouse coffee shop and Barney's. I got a Barney's hat on right now, actually. Yeah, nice. I've been there. We would go to Greenhouse and it was, you know, Harlem or Strat, you know, one of the most famous streets for coffee shops in Amsterdam. And we were around that corner coming from Central Station and you would see Greenhouse coffee shop right there. You ready to go. I smoked a joint with Willie Nelson there um, back in 2008, um, you know, at the, at the Cannabis Cup, 2007. So, you know, the last time I went there was in December and I was rounding that corner, Harlem restaurant, leaving Central Station like I always do. And now it's a cookies sign. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> One of the most famous, you know, spots. And, you know, whether people love cookies and what they've done or not, I mean, I, I think it's it's an amazing model for what can be done in the industry. And I think Burner has done an amazing job in a lot of aspects with, you know, with cookies. And I, I think, um, to me, what it represented really was just that the idea of American cannabis and American cannabis culture and, you know, American culture is just so popular, right? And so much so to where, you know, even in a place that has been known for cannabis for decades um, around the world as the hub for cannabis right now has cookies right there and the branding and the strains are selling for two times as much as, you know, what they normally are selling in there, right? So it's, it's opened my eyes up to what's really happening in this industry and what's really in front of us, right? And the possibilities. So, you know, I would say more than anything, the real possibilities of the industry and the globalization of what American cannabis culture means to the world, um, I think is, you know, eye-opening through that representation. And outside of that, you know, I think the opportunities that are available for people like myself who have been, you know, a target of cannabis prohibition enforcement, who have dealt with some of the negative repercussions. You know, I mentioned my dad, you know, he came out and he had to be a janitor and work his way up, you know, for 35 years, right? And I think often, what if, you know, instead of him going to, to prison, if he was able to go to college like he was supposed to, you know, what if he didn't have to start as a janitor, right? You know, I may, I would have had way more economic, you know, opportunities in my life, right? There's a lot of things that I would have had that my kids would have had that whatever, right? If he would have not had that taken away from him. And there's so many people like that around the country um, that, you know, this industry, because of that globalization and what it offers, also offers a lot of opportunity for true economic equity and for us to have a place and for us to have an opportunity to win in an industry for all people who I think have not really had the true American dream to have that, you know, through the industry. So I think about that a lot and how that has changed uh, for the good um, over the last 10 years or so. That's amazing. Wow. I, I I mean, it has changed a lot that that whole idea of globalization and just legalization in general and how that's changing people's lives um, and how it's going to continue changing our lives into the future. 
I wanted to ask you, I mean, I know you are a cultivator, um, but now you're also, I mean, you've been on the circuit a lot, like I, I mentioned in my intro, advocating, promoting this industry, good cultivation practices, indoor cultivation practices. Um, and I know a lot of other growers look up to you. What are you, what are you up to now um, and, and helping other growers? Um, it, you're doing some consulting now, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, now that um, I think, you know, there's so many people that have given cannabis consultants a bad name, right? That I almost don't even want to say consult. Like I'm an advisor. <laughs> there you go. That's better. Because, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who take that word very lightly. Um, but there's also people who, who serve it correctly. And I think that now that I've finally, you know, been able to have a real proof of concept, I have real differentiable building ideas, uh, facility ideas um, that are really proven and have shown value. And I have a team that can execute those. I think I've, I've you know, finally had the opportunity to get out there and help other people. Some of the things that I've learned and some of the skills that I have and being kind of that intermediate of a real grower who understands what it takes to produce cannabis that can win in this, you know, com you know, com very competitive market, but also having that connection to engineering, right? And that, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a professional engineer, right? So I don't go around saying I'm an engineer because there's a difference, right? I think, but having that connection to understanding that language of professional engineers and design and builders and, you know, that whole world, which is a really a whole world that I didn't really understand before I went through it myself. Now that I can be that connection and work with people who are licensed and having um, and, and are getting new licenses, I've really found a good a good home and opportunity. So I am consulting in a, in a few different states, um, kind of doing just that, helping them with project management, with designs, uh, with building, with coming in under budget, with really having that real knowledge of what's happening in the cultivation space so that people can be sustainable, not just from an energy standpoint, but business standpoint for many years and also competitive in this very fast growing market and very heavily saturated market in so many areas. So I have been having a really good success with that, with the teams that I'm working on. I've even actually reached out to you um, for you to help me with some of those questions, right? Because I think that's really also a benefit that um, people like myself, like you have, is that we have a network of people in the industry who, you know, we're not going to guess, we're not going to tell you what we think, we're going to go and we're going to get as much information as we can before we suggest anything. Um, and that really has to do with having a solid network. So I appreciate you with helping me in that regard as well. Yeah, well, I'm I'm really excited to work with you. And, and I'm really excited to see uh, how you help this industry and future and existing growers become more sustainable, be, you know, both on the business side of sustainability and like you said, uh, resource utilization side. Uh, and I'm excited to be on your team uh, where, where we can help uh, achieve those goals and serve that, that mission. I'm excited for the industry <laughs> that you're going to be involved in that way. So last question for you, what do plants crave? Oh, that's an easy one. <laughs> that's a very easy one. Attention. Uh, yeah? Yeah. Plants crave attention. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, over attention, but yeah, I mean, gosh, you can walk into a space and, you know, 
they almost tell you what they want, right? If you're in tune with what that plant wants, then you will get so much more out of it. You'll you'll have a happy plant all throughout the process, but it really goes into, you know, are you looking at the plant every day? Are you really, you know, taking, you know, small amounts of time? It doesn't take a long time to really assess on a regular basis. And I think that goes into having growers who have systems, who have processes, who have data, who have these things that are kind of there, they don't have to worry about that. All they have to do is walk into a grow room and just talk to the plants and just look at the plants and just baby it a little bit, de-leaf it a little bit, you know, um, clean up the, the the pot if you have it in some type of substrate like that or clean up the, the table, right? There's just so many small things that I think go a long way uh, to creating a happy environment for a plant. And when a plant is happy um, through all throughout the process from beginning to end, uh, what it'll give you is is surprising sometimes based on, you know, if you if, if you miss some steps. Attention. Yes, I agree. <laughs> okay, Jesse, um, I have a few final rapid fire questions for you. So they're just meant to be, you know, one word or a couple sentences. If you want to expand, by all means, go ahead. But they're supposed to be quick. So you ready? I'm ready. All right. Number one, are plants introverts or extroverts? Oh, I think introverts. Do you? Introverts, definitely. Just like the growers. Oh, Growers are introverts? Oh, absolutely. I believe so. Yeah. Interesting. Can cannabis create a more equitable society? Absolutely. Cannabis is the key to a more equitable society. Okay. What's the worst advice you've ever been given? You'll never be able to do that. Oh, man. I can't believe somebody actually said that to you. <laughs> <laughs> what has the cannabis plant taught you? The cannabis plant has taught me patience more than anything. I would say patience, without a doubt patience and and discipline patience and discipline cannabis though has taught me that more than anything else in that is deep that is deep that is food for thought for sure what does it mean to be a stoner to truly embody the lessons that cannabis has taught us uh, to to be inclusive to be open to be friendly to be uh to be inquisitive to, to question, to explore. I think, you know, I think that's that's what a true stoner is. And they apply that to to so many different aspects of their life through the use of cannabis. That is a much harder meme or comic strip to create than the guy laying on the couch with a bag of Cheetos hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> that's right. Stoner, stoners are very complex, very complex in so many different ways. The, the truest stoners who are not you know, who are actually using cannabis, right? And not, you know, not letting cannabis use them. Mm -hmm. All right. Last question. What's your favorite stoner movie? Friday. Without yeah. Friday. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's it, Jesse. Thank, Thank you again you so great. much. Enjoy talking to you. That was fantastic. Thank me you. Me too. Me too. All right. Well, we will catch you at the next event. And um, thank you for your time. Have a great rest of your day. All right. I'll be in touch soon. Thanks, Jesse. All right.
Bye.